Hello everybody, this is our fifth sermon looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're looking at Matthew 5 verses 38 to 48 and we're thinking about loving our enemies. A father is going away on business for three or four days and he is anxious that his wife will be properly looked after. So he goes and has a word with his eldest son, who was nine at the time. When I'm away, I want you to think what I would normally do around the house and you do it for me. Of course, he had in mind the task of cleaning, washing up, taking out the rubbish and so on. On his return, he asked his wife what the son had done. Well, she said, it was very strange. Straight after breakfast, he made himself another cup of coffee, went into the living room and put on his music far too loud and read the paper for an hour. The father was left wondering if his son had obeyed him a little bit too accurately. Now that is just a humorous story. But the shocking thing about this passage is that we are told the same thing. We're told to watch what our heavenly father is doing and then do the same thing ourselves. The summary verse to the opening of the Sermon on the Mount is this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, in every area of our lives, we're commanded to emulate God. We are commanded to pursue perfection. But there is more to that verse than just the command. In Greek, it is written in the future tense. Literally, it says, you shall be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, this verse is setting us a goal to aim for. It does not say keep being perfect or be continually perfect, because that would be an impossible demand as we all make mistakes. It says you shall be perfect. It is an emphatic goal for all disciples to shape their life around. We are to set nothing less than the perfection of God as the ultimate objective of our behaviour, thoughts and will. We cannot set our sights lower thinking, well, that would be an easier goal to reach. But listen one more time. You shall be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It is a verse that also implies something else, something truly great. One day we shall get there. One day we shall be perfect like God. This verse is a promise as well as a command and a goal. Jesus promises that as we aim for God's standards, he will help us by his Holy Spirit to reach them. It is a verse of hope. As disciples, we have been reborn by the Spirit into the new kingdom of God. On the day when Jesus returns and that kingdom comes in full, the Spirit will have made us complete. We shall have been made like him. So be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect is a command, a goal and a promise. It is the target that every disciple is called to pursue every day of our lives until our perfection in eternity. Every day we should be striving to be more like God. 
It is a tough ask at times, but the inspiration is there in that one day we shall be. If you want to put this into slightly easier words, the call of the Sermon on the Mount is this. I want to be more like God today than I was yesterday. I want to be more like God today than I was yesterday. That seems simple enough. But here in this passage, we face a challenge. For the original hearers to Jesus' sermon, it was an even greater challenge. Let me explain. In this passage, Jesus' Jewish listeners are told to love their enemies and pray for their persecutors. They're told to treat the righteous and the unrighteous in the same way. They're told not even to prefer their own brothers and sisters over others. Quite simply, Israel were not to have favourites. They were not to prefer some over others. Add that to verse 48 and the call to be perfect like their father and the message is clear. Israel do not have any favourites. God has no favourites, so neither should you. God is not biased, so neither should you be. You should love all people. But here is the big problem. Those original hearers to this sermon did believe that God had favourites. They did believe God preferred some over others and they thought it was them. Israel were God's chosen ones. Surely it was they who God preferred. Israel truly believed they were God's favourites. You know, in verse 43, when Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Well, I'm sure the people had heard it a lot, an awful lot. But let me tell you, the words hate your enemy are not found in the Old Testament anywhere. Not in the law, not in the writings or poetry, not in the prophets. God never commanded his people to hate their enemies. Yes, it says God hates evil and sin. Yes, it says God cannot dwell within the wicked. Yes, at times in Old Testament history, God dealt harshly with the idolatrous nations who were leading Israel astray. But nowhere did he command, hate your enemy. That popular phrase banded around the Jews so freely was created purely by their own mindset. They thought they were more important than the rest. They thought they were God's favourites. Stuff the rest. Israel thought they were above them all. Now listen again to what Jesus said and feel the sting in his words. If they wanted to be perfect like God, they were not to have favourites anymore. They were to love their enemies and pray for their persecutors if they wanted to be true sons of the Father. They had to love the unrighteous as much as their brothers and sisters if they didn't want to be as bad as the tax collectors and the pagans. This was a huge challenge to the listeners. It totally changed their view on God. Yes, he might hate sin, but he loves sinners, whoever they are, and he loves them all equally. It also totally changed their view on the world. They were not God's favourites. He makes the sun rise and the rain fall on good and bad alike. He faithfully sustains all things because he loves all things and loves them equally. 
This teaching was a huge challenge. Jesus' listeners would have been shifting very uncomfortably. Their doctrine of God and theology of his world were being shaken to the core. So how were the Jews to make sense of all this? How could they be God's chosen ones, which they were, and yet not his favourites? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, actually, Jesus had already given them the answer right at the beginning of this sermon when he told them that he was going to take them back to their original calling and what they really should have been doing. You see, Israel were never chosen to be God's special people just so the rest of the world could remain in darkness and rot away. Oh no, they've been chosen for a purpose. They've been chosen to be the light to the rest of the world and the salt that would stop the whole world from going bad. Israel had been chosen so that through them, God could bless all the people on earth. God had no favourites. He blessed Israel because ultimately he wanted to bless everyone. Yet already we have a good idea that this calling to be a light to the world is a very dangerous calling indeed. Think about a lighthouse. Lighthouses are usually placed in very dangerous places where they're going to get battered by wind and waves. This is, after all, where they are needed most. Well, here Israel are being called to love others, to bless nations around them, to be different to other people by showing grace and mercy like God does at a time when they themselves were getting battered. The Romans had overrun the land and imposed harsh rules and taxes on the people. The Jews were an oppressed and occupied nation. And it all goes to beg the question, how were they to love in a world like this? How were they to stand out? How were they to be like God and bless the very people who were making their lives miserable, killing their relatives and destroying their land? To be a light in this situation is a very dangerous calling indeed. To love your enemies makes you vulnerable at a time like this. Where was the logic in loving and praying for people who were oppressing, persecuting and committing all sorts of evil acts against you? Where was the justice? And just before we go on to try and answer that question, let's not be naive. The challenge can be just the same for us. How often we are tempted to think that we are God's favourites, as though because we go to church and try to live righteous lives, that God loves us more than the rest. So when we are called to love those who make our lives difficult, the same question arises. When we're called to love those who mock our faith, where is the justice, God? When we're called to pray for those who are changing the law seemingly against our faith, where is the justice? Or for those Christians in Africa whose churches keep getting bombed, are they to love the bombers? Where is the justice? Are we not just getting trampled over? This call is just as challenging to us today. This call to love enemies is just as dangerous when we feel it is we who are getting marginalised. Where is the justice? Where is it? Well, this is where verses 38 to 42 
coming. In these verses, Jesus states that in his kingdom, there is a new sort of justice, a creative, healing, restorative justice, a justice that shows that God does not have favourites, but loves all and wants all to come to faith. In the Old Testament, justice was designed around the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It was a system designed to stop revenge running away from itself. With this law, you could not just go out and get wanton revenge. The punishment had to fit the crime. In fact, you could not even exact the punishment yourself. In Deuteronomy 19, it says that you had to go to a court and let them make the ruling because private revenge was always likely to be biased. So this law, which there is little evidence was ever taken literally, was designed to stop revenge and anger and violence escalating in the community of God's people. Wanton, bloodthirsty revenge was how the pagans acted. Israel were to be different. But by Jesus' day, this law was being used for something else. As Israel were being overrun by the Romans with no chance ever of a fair trial, the Jews were using this law as an excuse for plotting violent revenge on Rome. The zealots and the freedom fighters were using it as an excuse to plan bloodthirsty insurgent attacks of retaliation. Jesus would tolerate nothing of the sort. And so he takes them back to the original purpose of the law. It was supposed to make Israel different from the pagans. It was supposed to make them stand out. So the pagans would ask what made them different and come in to find out. How could Israel now stand out from the way Rome did things? Well, a subversive answer was clear. Do not retaliate at all. In a climate where you're being overrun, the best thing to do is not take vengeance at all. Rather be much more creative. Try to make a way forward that will show your oppressors the astonishingly patient love of your God. Win them over by refusing to sink to their level in return. This way Israel would still be different. This way they would still shine. They would show love to their enemies and their enemies would want to know why. Israel would then have chance to tell them about God. To love enemies is to reflect the God who has no favourites, who hates the sin but loves the sinner. To love enemies is distinctly missional, even though so personally dangerous. But isn't that the very definition of sacrificial love? When reading this passage, it becomes clear that no other God in any other religion loves the world enough to encourage his chosen people to behave in this way. And now having laid out the theory, Jesus gives some practical examples. If you are struck in the face, turn the other cheek. Don't hit back because that just circulates evil. As Gandhi said, an eye for an eye eventually will leave everyone blind. Instead, make your attacker think. Show them love. By turning the other cheek, you challenge their attitudes. You set an example. If someone is suing you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Don't retaliate. Show them love. Let them see the nakedness they are reducing you to and make them think, why would this person be sacrificing themselves for me? 
If a Roman soldier makes you carry his equipment, which by law they could make anyone do for up to a mile, go another mile. Show them generosity. Show them that there is a different way of being human that does not plot revenge all the time. Show them a way of rising above violence and injustice through sacrifice. Show them Jesus. In verse 42, this sacrificial living is described as keep giving to others, even when you know you'll get nothing back. This is restorative justice. It forces the wrongdoer to think. It shows them love. Through standing out, it paves the way for healing and restoration rather than the escalation of violence and wrongdoing. This is how to shine and be missional in your living. I wonder what illustrations we could use of creative justice in our lives. How could we show love for our enemies in a way that opens the door for healing and restoration rather than shutting it forever as lashing back would do? Perhaps we could buy a challenging person a gift. Perhaps we could commit to working hard for a difficult boss. Perhaps we could pray for errant politicians. Perhaps we could invite family members who have hurt us in the past round for dinner. When the independence debate comes round again, perhaps we could go out of our way to show hospitality to someone on the other side. These are the ways that we show love and refuse to have favourites. These are the ways we hate the sin but love the sinner. In every situation we face, we need to think through, what would it mean to reflect God's generous love and forgiveness? Despite the pressure and provocation, despite our own anger and frustration, how in this situation do I become more like God? How do I stand out and shine for him here? Now, I know all this sounds impossible, and in some ways it is. We will never be able to do this in our own strength. We will need to pray and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. But let us not forget that we have been set the perfect example by a human being just like us. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus lived in exactly this way. When mocked, he did not respond. When challenged, he told a humorous story that forced his accusers to think differently. When struck, he took the pain. When given a cross, he carried it to the place of his own execution. When the soldiers nailed him to it, he prayed for them. The Sermon on the Mount is not just about us, because we will all fail at times to keep its ideals. It's also about Jesus. It shows us who he was and how he lived. It shows us that he asks us to do nothing that he would not do himself. In Jesus, we see what God is really like. If we want to be perfect like our Heavenly Father, we need to commit to trying to be more like Jesus. As we read about him in Scripture, we need to begin to reflect the love that we find out into the world because the world needs it so badly. With Jesus living in us by his Holy Spirit, loving our enemies is possible and we should try to do it. Let us enter every day of this coming week with a clear goal. 
I want to be more like Jesus today than I was yesterday.